Today's scripture reading comes from 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our own eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled, concerning the word of life, the life was manifested, and we have seen, and bear witness, and declare to you that eternal life, which was with the Father, and was manifested to us, that which we have seen and heard, we declare to you, that you also have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you, that your joy may be full. I want to thank both Tom Gibson and Wesley last week for filling in for me as we were away. I had a chance to listen to the messages and know that God used them in a special way. So thank you very much for that. A good man, yes, perhaps one of the best who has ever lived, but just a man, many people say. Others disagree, claiming that he suffered from delusions of grandeur, a messiah complex, they call it. And over the centuries, the argument rages over the true identity of this man called Jesus. Suggestions have ranged from simple teacher to egomaniac to misguided fool. And hearing these discussions and arguments made oh so eloquently and forcefully often, even Christians today can begin to wonder and doubt because their reasoning just sounds so good and so right. Is Jesus really God? Did he come to save sinners like us? Is he the only way? Does God really care about me? This morning we're beginning a new series as we've unfortunately come to the end of summer, except Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday is pretty warm, back to summer weather again. And we're going to be taking a look at 1 John, which is the first epistle or first letter of John. And I've entitled this series, Certainty in Times of Uncertainty. 1 John was written to dispel the doubts and to build assurance by presenting a clear picture of Christ. Entering history, Jesus was God in the flesh. And was God seen and heard and touched by the author of this letter, the disciple, the apostle, John. John walked and talked with Jesus, saw him heal, heard him teach, watched him die, met him ascended, and, uh, excuse me, met him arisen and then saw him ascended. John knew God. He had lived with him and seen him work. And John enjoyed that fellowship with the Father and with the Son all the days of his life. Now, John was an older man when he wrote this letter, perhaps the only surviving apostle at the time. He hadn't yet been banished to the island of Patmos, where he would end up living in exile. And as an eyewitness of Christ, he wrote 
authoritatively to give this new generation of believers that we're going to be following him the assurance and confidence that God, about God and in their faith. And in this letter, he, he presents God as light, he presents him as love, and he presents him as life. He explains in simple and practical terms what it means to have fellowship with God. And at the same time, false teachers had risen up. They had already entered the church denying the incarnation of Christ, the fact that Christ came and became a person, God in the form of Jesus Christ. So John was also writing to correct these serious errors that were coming into the church. John's letter then becomes a model for us to follow as we combat modern heresies. The Apostle Paul and the Apostle John were really on the same page. Paul in Romans chapter 1 writes about what's going on not only in his day, but what's going to be following and into our day today. In verse 18, he talks about all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. He goes on to say in verse 29 there in Romans 1, they have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve wrath or death, they not only continue to do those very things, but also approve of those who practice them. He's describing 21st century America, isn't he? In a day and age where truth is relative, where anything I believe is my truth, and therefore it's the truth for me and you can't tell me otherwise. In a day and age when words are redefined, where hate refers to when you disagree with me and tell me that I'm wrong, where love means to accept and condone and agree with the lifestyle of all, where saying all lives matter is deemed hate speech, and therefore John 3.16 becomes <laughs> hate speech because it's because all lives matter that God sent His one and only Son where the name of Jesus Christ is used most commonly as a swear word, and where God's name is constantly used in vain every time someone says, Oh my God, the church has failed to speak up and stand its ground. Paul says in verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. First to the Jew, then to the Gentile, for in the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed, and a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. How many Christians today are ashamed of the gospel? Now, John begins this epistle in a very straightforward way. There's no introductory statements. There's no identification of the author. There are no greetings. He just jumps immediately into the issue. He's got something to say, and he's going to say it. He writes in, very, in verse 1, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. 
This morning, for the message, I want to introduce you to John's first letter. John wants to dispel all doubts. This is a letter about the word of life. And he says, I am writing this from personal experience. He says, I've heard it. I've seen it. I've looked deeply into it. And I've handled it with my own hands. So John is writing as an eyewitness. And at the time that he writes, it's the last dec- decade of the first century, probably somewhere around 90 A.D., and he's uh, probably the last apostle alive who still has a vital and vibrant ministry of preaching and teaching and, and leading a church and writing. And when he writes, his subject is the word of life. The word of life, what is that exactly? Years ago, we used to sing a a hymn that says, Sing them over again to me. Remember that one? Wonderful words of life. Let me more of their beauty see. Wonderful words of life. Words of life and beauty. Teach me faith and duty. Beautiful words. Wonderful words. Wonderful words of life. But as I was considering that song, those words, true as they are, only partially portray the truth that John is trying to get across here. You see, the word of life which John heard and saw and looked intently into and his hands handled, he describes in verse 2, the life appeared, speaking of the word of life, the life appeared. We have seen it and we testify to it and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. Three times he affirms that this is firsthand eyewitness truth concerning the word of life, the word of life that was once with the Father, the word of life which was incarnate, it appeared in human form, and the word of life which brought eternal life. This then is a message about God's revelation in Jesus Christ. That's to say the true revelation of God in the incarnate Word, which is His Word that became life. The Word of life then embodies Christ. It embodies the gospel of Christ. They are inseparable. So John starts out by saying, I'm going to be writing to you the truth about the Word of life. That's my focus. Incarnate and written. I'm going to tell you the truth. And this is important because the churches to whom he writes in Asia Minor have been subjected to error. And as a sort of apostolic duty and responsibility that really every pastor and Bible teacher has, John knows he has to confront error with the truth. So he begins by giving a number of certainties concerning the word of life. And that's what we're going to be looking at a little bit today as we introduce and then more so uh, next Sunday. Now I believe that the greatest reality the world possesses whether they know it or not, is divine truth. Everybody in the world is searching for it. Why do you think there are so many religions out there around the world? Because deep down inside, we are created to know that God exists. We are created to have a relationship with Him, and therefore there's an emptiness in our lives without Him. So people are searching, and most of them, unfortunately, are searching in all the wrong places. So yes, I believe the greatest reality the world possesses is divine truth. Nothing is as important, nothing is as valuable as divine truth. The purest, the most powerful, the most necessary, the most valuable reality in existence is God's truth, the Word of God. 
It alone provides eternal life. And eternal life is the most necessary thing that exists. Now, since the greatest reality the world possesses is divine truth, the greatest threat then in the world is any idea contrary to the truth. That's why Paul so strongly says in 2 Corinthians 10 verse 5, we demolish, I mean we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Any high, any modern, any more informed idea invented by men raised up against the Word of God constitutes the greatest threat in existence. Now this kind of draws a proverbial line in the sand. The greatest gift the world has is divine truth. The greatest threat is anything that assaults that truth, any form of error including the popular concept today that anything I believe is true and therefore is true. It's my truth. And those who are leaders and pastors and Bible teachers have a divine responsibility to point out error, and that's exactly what the Apostle, Paul, uh, excuse me, Apostle John is doing here in his letter. We're engaged then with what is essentially the real spiritual warfare, and that's a war between the truth and error. And it rages on today as it's done all through human history. Started way back in Genesis, Genesis chapter 3, where Satan told Eve that God didn't say something that God said. Did God really say? Popping that doubt in. It's always been that, that way. The truth of God against the lies of Satan and mankind. In the very first century of the church, you would have certainly thought, right, the first, first uh, number of years that the church would have stayed pure doctrinally and ethically and morally, behaviorally, but it didn't. And Jesus, when Jesus uh, ascended back to heaven, he sent the Spirit of God. He sent his Holy Spirit. And the purpose was to inspire the apostles to teach the church the truth, to speak to them of things concerning himself so that they could write it down the record of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ and the redemption of Jesus Christ and the full explanation of what that means. They were to write that down and establish that truth. And having then written that down, they were to then pro to proclaim the truth as they went out and began these churches. They had the responsibility to preach the word in season and out of season and to reprove and rebuke anyone who attacked the word. Well, by the end of the first century, just 50, 60 years after the church had established, a very short period of time, the truth was already under a massive assault. And the first assault on the truth came from, the, uh, from uh, Jewish legalism. And that's the primary assault that you see the Apostle Paul dealing with when writing the book of Romans and the book of Galatians, battling that issue of legalism. That was the issue that revolved around the first Jerusalem council. That's the issue that battled all through the book of Acts. As the Apostle Paul, in particular, goes into Jewish synagogues and confronts legalism and points to grace and salvation in Jesus Christ and Him alone. Legalism never went away. It's continued to be a battle down through the centuries. The second great battle that Christianity fought is one which John tackles in his letters as he writes. 
And we're going to see that it's a threat that's still with us today. In writing this letter, on the one hand, John engages in a very positive message of affirming the congregation in life-changing truth, a truth that sanctifies, a truth that purifies. But at the same time, he's equipping them to be able to discern the things that threaten the truth. As you well know, even in our own culture, there's a great danger in proclaiming truth boldly. That's one reason many churches have stopped proclaiming boldly or have tried to soften the truth to make it more palatable. You remember, of course, that all the apostles who engaged in preaching the truth boldly in the gospel and in confronting error were rejected and eventually lost their lives, the majority of them as martyrs. The Apostle Paul, who was the last to be made an apostle, was a martyr to the cause of truth as well. They killed him for the truth. And here John, the last of them alive, is about to be exiled to the island of Patmos. Why? Because he's preaching the truth of Jesus Christ. Now when John writes this epistle, he's an old man, probably in his 80s by now. The only man now alive with a personal, intimate association with the Son of God. And many of the early church fathers in the next centuries, men like Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, Clement of Alexander, and Eusebius, in their writings tell us that John was at this time living and ministering to the church in Ephesus. He was there pastoring the church in Ephesus, but also overseeing the other six churches in that area into which the seven letters that he addresses in Revelation, are referred to. Isn't that interesting? Now, as we know, the church of Ephesus was founded by the Apostle Paul. Paul was there and ministered for three years. And in Acts chapter 20, he called the leaders together and gave them a prophetic word about what was going to be taking place in the churches. Listen to what he warns them about, starting in verse 28 of Acts 20. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, this is where the prophecy is coming in, I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, people that are within your own congregation will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years, I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. That was Paul's warning of what was going to be taking place. So John now, at about 80 years old, is pastoring this church in Ephesus, encouraging uh, to encourage the others and dealing with what Paul said was going to be happening. Because exactly, that's exactly what did happen. He gives them the truth of Jesus Christ and the certainties of faith, but at the same time, he's equipping them and therefore equipping us to be able to recognize error when it appears. I've never seen 1 John. This has been fascinating to me as I've been digging into 1 John here. But John had a zero-tolerance policy for error. I mean, zero. And so should we. He would not allow it. And because John is so consumed with the truth and so concerned to protect us from error, there's nothing vague in his epistle. There's really nothing ambiguous about anything that he says. 
If you were to read through this letter, and I'd encourage you to do that sometime this afternoon or this evening, um, just, just give an over, overview idea of what he's writing about, you're going to find that statement after statement after statement comes, from, comes with absoluteness. Just take chapter 1, for example, verse 6. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie. Bam. That's a very matter-of-fact statement. No exceptions. Verse 7, if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus His Son purifies us from all sin. Another absolute statement. Verse 8, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Verse 9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Verse 10, if we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar. It's just that way all through his whole letter, just point blank, absolute, clear statements. In verse 15 of chapter 2, he says, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them, period. Just so absolutely clear and precise and unambiguous. And that's how it goes all through his letter. But though he's committed to the truth, he is clearly committed to the balance of truth and love. And that's why he's become known as the apostle of love, even though he's so firm for the truth. For example, in chapter 3, verse 16, he writes, This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Now that's love. And he learned that from Jesus, because Jesus said in the upper room, no greater love can a man have than lay down, laying down his life for his friends. And John learned that, and he's saying here, we too ought to lay down our lives for one another. He had that great ability to love. And over in chapter 4, verse 18, he gives us that great statement, perfect love does what? Casts out fear. Verse 19, we love because he first loved us. Verse 21, the commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother as well. Love's all over the place. So his letters, as well as his gospel, are the truth expressed out of love. They're not sentimental. They're not mushy. They're not soft. They're hard. They're straightforward, they're absolute, they're dogmatic, but out of love, he gives the truth. Now, there are similarities and differences between his gospel, the gospel of John, and his letters. First of all, it's obvious that his subject is the same. 1 John 1.1 that we read, we know that this letter is going to be about what? About the Word. It's about the living Word, the Word of life. Well, that's what his gospel is all about as well. In the very beginning, John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It's all about the Word. Same topic, same subject. So the purpose of, God, of the gospel of John, however, is evangelistic. In fact, that's his stated purpose in the last verse of his gospel, chapter 20, verse 31. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, evangelistic, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. 
The epistle, however, on the other hand, was written to believers, people that were already within the church, not to bring them to salvation, but to deepen their confidence in the work of Christ and their assurance of that salvation so that they could fully enjoy the life that they received. Now, the enemies of the truth in the gospel are unbelieving Jews, the legalists of Judaism, who refused to believe that Jesus was actually the Son of God, or was God, and who refused to abandon their legalistic self, uh, uh, system of self-righteousness. The enemies of the truth, however, in the epistles are professing Christians, those who say they are Christians, who are led astray by false teachers. They, too, are the enemies of the truth. See, the truth has enemies everywhere, outside the church and within the church. And the ones that are the most difficult and often the most damaging are the ones that come from within the church. And that's what John is combating here in his first letter as he writes to the believers in that area. Now, as he writes, he has three purposes. Three purposes in mind which he clearly states, each, of, each one which relates to believers. The first one is joy. Chapter 1, verse 4. I write this to make your joy, our joy complete. Second purpose is holiness. Chapter 2, verse 1. I write this to you so that you will not sin. And his third purpose in writing is assurance that we find in chapter 5, verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Our absolute assurance. These are great purposes, and my hope and prayer is that as we go through this letter together, it will increase our joy, it's going to increase our holiness, and it's going to increase our assurance in our faith in Jesus Christ. Now, interestingly enough, and we'll see this more as we go through, John also gives us three basic keys to seeing those purposes fulfilled. We find that right in the middle of the letter in chapter 3, verses 23 and 24. And this is his command, he says, to believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. The one who keeps God's commands lives in him and he in them. So the first key is that we need to believe in the name of his Son. If we don't believe, there's nothing in this letter that's pertinent to us. Might as well give it up. Secondly, we need to love one another. Thirdly, we need to obey, to obey, to keep His commands. For those who believe and love and obey those three keys, this letter is going to de uh, deliver that increased joy, and that increased holiness, and that increased assurance. Now, these are all positive, and the these are all wonderful. But remember, the overarching reason John is writing this letter is to encourage, yes, the believers, but it's also very strongly written to call out the error in the church because it is so destructive. So John is both positive and negative, and that's, that's not a bad thing. Now, everybody wants to be positive all the, right, all the time, right? We don't want to, want to hurt anybody's feelings or make anybody feel badly. But if we don't call out error or sin, and that's what's happening in so many churches of today, we hurt individuals, we hurt the church, we hurt the work of Christ. So he's both positive and he's negative. 
While he wants Christians to know who they are, he also wants to point out who the false teachers are who are infecting the churches with their evil influence. He even directly speaks about the false teachers and prophets in chapter 4, verse 1, where he says, Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets are gone, have gone into the world. And back in chapter 3, verse 7, he says, Do not let anyone lead you astray. Don't let anybody deceive you. How, strong, how strongly do you think John believes this or feels about this? Listen to what he says in chapter 2, verse 18. Dear friends, this is the last hour. As you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. He makes a distinction between the Antichrist and Antichrists that are already in the church. It's actually very simple. If you're not for Christ, what are you? <laughs> you're Antichrist. They're deceivers. John wants the flock to recognize the truth and to recognize error. Now, the error that they were teaching was concerning the Word. That's why his focus is on the Word of life. Be concerning the Word incarnate, Jesus Christ, and the Word written. Both go together. They're, they're inseparable. The gospel about Christ. Their error began with the person of Jesus Christ. False prophets and teachers want to deny who Christ really is. Because if you, don't, if you believe in the wrong Christ, you can't be saved. And that's why John calls them out as antichrists. According to John, an antichrist is a term for anybody who tampers with the true nature, person, and work of Christ. So what kind of claims were they making? Well, if we just look at chapter 1 for a minute, and we're going to be delving into this as we go through the letter, we see him repeating the phrase, if we say... Over and over again, verse 6, verse 8, verse 10. Those statements reflect what the false teachers were saying. Verse 6 indicates that they were teaching that they could have fellowship with Christ and yet walk in darkness. We can be good Christians, right? Go to church Sunday morning. But I can keep on living in sin and it's not a problem. I mean, God's love, right? John calls them out as liars. They said in verse 8, we have no sin. That's another one of their statements. Well, that's not true. According to Paul in Romans 1, they're, they're in the state of self-deception and the truth isn't in them. So they were not only denying the person of Christ, but they were actually went so far as to deny that they had any sin by redefining sin. Doesn't that sound familiar today? So they deny the truth person of Christ who is and who he is and what he requires, and they deny their true lostness. They deny um, sin by redefining it so they can just keep on sinning and feel good about themselves. Folks, the only way we can be holy in Christ if we recognize our sin and if we confess it. Scripture is very clear about that. And the third error that John was combating had to do with the topic of love. Now, I so wish that we had more words in, English, in the English language to describe love, like Greek, the, the, the Greek language does. Everybody just likes to throw around the word love, right? Love. 
and make it mean anything that you want it to mean. There were people in the church that claimed they loved God, but they, held, they, they hated their fellow believers. John writes in chapter 4, verse 20, whoever claims to love God, who hates a brother or sister, is a liar. That's pretty strong. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God. Impossible. All these heresies and false teachings combined later became known as Gnosticism. It comes from the Greek word gnosis, to know. And it's based on the idea that some people had this secret knowledge, special knowledge. They've, they've been given a new revelation and they, and they know better. Today they talk about being more enlightened than those primitive people way back then when they were writing Scripture. That's why Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 10.5, we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. One author wrote, that Gnosticism is any form of mysticism, any concept in the mind of man that is elevated above the Word of God, any mystical system, any religious system, any cult, any false system, any theory, any viewpoint elevated above the truth. These high-sounding arguments in our culture today have crept into many churches. and That's why this letter is so important for us today. People today deny the same things that the people in John's day denied. They denied Jesus Christ as the true Son of God. They deny that Jesus, the true Word of God, the true Word of life, came in the flesh. We're going to look at some, some uh, statistics about that as well next week. They deny God's love and that it must be reciprocated to one another. So Gnosticism comes, another commentary explains, it attacks Jesus Christ, it attacks the person of Christ, attacking the fact that God came in human uh, flesh, it attacks the diagnosis of man that he is a sinner in need of a Savior, it assaults the responsibility to love, thus it wipes out substitutionary atonement, wipes out obedience, holiness, righteousness, the law of God, and it wipes out the necessity of loving relationships. These people, he goes on to write, lived to gratify their appetites, to gratify their lusts without limit. Physical purity was meaningless. In fact, in their minds, they didn't even sin. What does that sound like? Sounds like our world today, doesn't it? That's why John, his epistle, is so concerned to point out the nature of Christ, the essence of sin and righteousness and the demand for love. This is distinctive. And we come back to the very first verse there in 1 John. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. That's his premise. So as John writes this epistle, he exposes the false and he also reveals the truth. Throughout this epistle, there is an absoluteness about John as he points out the black and white realities of what it means to be a Christian. Throughout this epistle, there's a note of certainty that rings loudly. If I had a bell, every time we see the word no, 
K-N-O-W. He puts it in there 36 times in these five short chapters. By this we know, he says. Not we think, or we hope, or we wish, or we feel. We know absolute truth. This is an epistle of certainty. In a time where the world hates certainties. And it starts out in, verse, in, in the first four verses with five great certainties. Which we're going to look at next time. Certainties in a time of uncertainty. I trust this will be a time to recommit to the certainty of God's Word and the truth of God's Word and the inerrancy of God's Word and the fact that this is the only truth that we have. Father, this morning we thank you for your... The truth that you gave to us, first of all, in Jesus Christ himself, and then in your written word, the New Testament, explaining, describing, purifying, not purifying, just just clarifying what the living word was all about and, and, and how we can have changed lives. And Father, in a world today where even evangelicals, this is shocking to me, we're going to look at it next week, but Father, even evangelicals are doubting that Jesus is actually God. Doubting that the word is the only truth that we have. Doubting that all of it is actually true. Doubting that Jesus is the only way. Father, I pray that this would not be the case with us, that, that your word would clarify for us that you are the way, the truth, and the life, and there is no other. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.